G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. A wonderful opportunity today to reflect on a true love story. In fact, described as one of the greatest epic love stories of modern times. It's prominent because one of the greatest ever authors and Christian thinkers of the 20th century is at its heart... It's the love story of C.S. Lewis and his only wife, Helen Joy Davidman Gresham. It was an improbable and seemingly impossible story. And their story led to some of C.S. Lewis's greatest works on love, grief and faith. Well, there's a new book that's just been released. It's written by New York Times best-selling author Patty Callahan. And Patty tells the story of becoming Mrs. Lewis. So I hope you can stay around and enjoy the conversation that will come over this hour ahead. And if you are a C.S. Lewis fan and not quite so familiar with joy, then you will be by the end of our conversation. So I want to make a special welcome to 2020 today to Patty Callahan. Hello, Patty. Welcome. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. I think. It's tomorrow where you are. Well, that's right. We're talking to you from the U.S. And it's Friday morning here, but it's Thursday evening there. And thank you for staying up late because I think it's about 8.30 your time. So I hope you had nothing else planned this evening. And uh, thank you so much for uh, humbly saying, yes, I'd love to talk to our listeners here in Australia. No, you are my plans this evening. I'm thrilled to be here. Okay. Well, congratulations on the book. It's not your first book. Perhaps we'll talk about some of your other books a little later. But let's talk about this one, Becoming Mrs. Lewis. And this is the story about the woman that the great C.S. Lewis called My Whole World. I wonder whether at the start of our conversation you might reflect on that comment, My Whole World, Because apart from God, I guess, at the center of C.S. Lewis and his faith, was this woman, Joy. Yes. So that was part of what he wrote about. When Joy passed away, Lewis wrote one of his most seminal works, which is A Grief Observed. And A Grief Observed, he says, he calls her my whole world, earth, stars, air, and water. He calls her mistress, teacher, mother, friend. Because what Joy became, finally, after a decade of a relationship, is what many would argue to be all four loves. So we know that Lewis, one of Lewis's greatest works was the book, The Four Loves. And it's arguably true that Joy became all four loves to him. And so I think that's what he means when he says, my whole world, earth, stars, air, and water— is that all the kinds of love that there are, she became all of those. Patty, uh, let's get a little uh, bit or piece into place here, because Joy called C.S. Lewis affectionately Jack. And so Mm. the conversation 
unfolds, as you've recorded in your book, these conversations between Joy and Jack. Uh, Where did the Jack come from? So the very first time that they started talking was through letters. So Joy had this experience. She lived in the United States. That's why this story is so improbable. Joy was this New York-born, born and bred woman in, in upstate New York who wrote to C.S. Lewis. And they had a little less than three years of what he called a pen friendship. And within a very short time, he asked her to call him what very few people did, which is the name Jack. And so something happened in those letters that Joy and Jack and Joy became extremely close very quickly. And what's so fascinating is that happened through words and letters alone. And that's what makes the story even more interesting because it wasn't that they met somewhere and started, you know, this intellectual banter, which they did have for the rest of their time together but that it started with letters. And in those letters, in a very short amount of time, he said, please call me Jack. And very few people called him Jack. Only his dearest friends called him that. Patty, the story starts, as you say, in the U.S. with Joy, who is an atheist, who finds herself praying to a God she doesn't believe in, And she discovers Mm. the writings of C.S. Lewis and she begins to devour as many as a dozen books that he'd already written before she began to have this pen pal relationship. Take us back to those days in the U.S. when she was an atheist and where she was seeking answers and truth. So Joy Davidman was a genius. She was born and she was 17 years junior to Lewis, and yet she was a powerful and intellectual and literary woman in her own right. At a very young age, she won the Yale Younger Poets Award. She was, she was an intellectual seeker. Well, at this time that she started writing to Lewis, she was married with two young children, a complete atheist, a materialist, and kind of moving almost out of communism at that time. And her husband called one night and said that he wasn't coming home because he was going to take his own life. Her husband had some problems. He'd been in the Spanish Civil War. He had what we might today call PTSD. So here is this woman born in New York. Joy Davidman never left New York except for six months in Hollywood writing screenplays. She is embedded in deeply in this world. So her husband calls one night. He says he's not coming home. He's going to take his own life. And she finds herself on her knees. And she doesn't understand why she's on her knees. She doesn't understand who she's praying to or why she's praying. And in her words, I like to use her words more than mine, she says, and then God came in. Isn't that such a beautiful phrase? And then God came in. She had this crack in her soul and in her life, and she realized she was not, in her words, the captain of her own soul anymore. And then she has one of my favorite quotes of hers, which is she says, I finally realized that life cannot forever be endured with logic alone. 
So after that happened and she realized logic was not going to carry her through any longer, she remembered reading the works of C.S. Lewis. And yes, she had probably read a dozen of his books by then. So we have to put it in context and remember that this is 19, late 1940s. Narnia isn't out yet. He's not famous in the U.S. yet. But he has been on the cover of Time magazine. And he had written Mere Christianity, The Great Divorce, The Screwtape Letters, his Science Fiction Trilogy. And she had read all of those. And she had thought him brilliant, but wrong, Right. She had thought that he was wise, but wrong. So she remembered his work. And so she read an article written in the Atlantic Monthly called Apostle to the Skeptics, written by a man named Chad Walsh. So she wrote to Chad Walsh, and she said, I need to talk to this man, C.S. Lewis. And he said, Chad Walsh said, I spent six months with this man. He reads every letter written to him, write to him, he'll answer you. And so Joy Davidman wrote to him, and six months later, in January of 1950, he answered her, and they started a pen friendship that led to this amazing friendship and love story. So Joy was married to Bill in the U.S., and they divorced after their troubled marriage and following her conversion to Christianity. And as you describe that there, an atheist on her knees uh, looking for answers, looking for truth, uh, the connection then to this academic, Chad, who said you should write letters to C.S. Lewis, and she began to do that, and then she finally received a response. And this, Patty, must be the start of where this romance begins because then they begin to correspond with one another and not the way we do today with social media that's instant anywhere in the world. Back in those days, Patty, uh, no doubt... Oh, with airmail. Airmail or uh, no doubt sometimes by sea. So uh, these these sorts of pen pal relationships, uh, uh, there's a lot of delay in there, isn't there? Yes, and I think that was what was so fascinating to me from the beginning. So at first I thought, I want to tell the story of this fiery and amazing woman. You know, I want to tell this love story about this kind of improbable love story. But as soon as I started writing about her and started researching her, I realized that it wasn't just a love story by any means. It was far from just a love story. It was a story of this grand and wide-sweeping transformational journey that showed that once this woman changed her life, once she started on this transformational journey, then she completely changed his life. And it started with letters, and it went. They wrote letters for a little less than three years before Joy boarded a ship to England for the first time. So the story has often been very simplified, as if Joy got on a ship, took her sons, moved there, they fell in love, they got married. It's so much more complicated than that. So the first time she went, she went alone. And I always say that the first time she got on that ship in August of 1952, after almost three years of pen friendship with C.S. Lewis, her friend Jack, that's where the story gets really good. And not because it gets easy, but because it gets anything but easy. Because they both have 
so many internal and external obstacles to overcome that the story is one of such transformation both in faith and in searching for their lives in Christ and in understanding love. And so they both had to overcome it wasn't simple. It wasn't, you know, we were pen pals and then fell in love and then I moved there. It, and that is the story I wanted to tell, is how complicated it really was. From the very first letter, they were connected, but that didn't mean they were going to be together. There were too many obstacles for them to be together for it to be easy. Now, some of your research for the book, Patty, was in meeting Joy's son, Douglas, And uh, some will remember, of course, when the first Narnia movies began to be released, uh, Douglas was right alongside uh, those movies as they were being promoted around the world. And uh, I remember a conversation with Douglas on the radio here with uh, our morning announcer, uh, Robbo. Uh, There is a certain sense in which uh, getting that personal family connection was really a primary part of your research as you've put the book together. Mm, it really was. And, uh, you know, so what we have to remember is that Joy had two sons. And if people have only seen the movie Shadowlands or only heard Douglas speak, we forget that Joy had two sons, Davy and Douglas. Now, Davy passed away approximately six years ago, I think it's been now. So Douglas has been entirely in charge of the C.S. Lewis estate for years since you know, since Lewis passed away. And as as Lewis's estate has grown and as um, Narnia has become movies and, and things have, have, have widened all over the world, he has been the touch point for, for Lewis's estate, kind of guarding Lewis's legacy, guarding his mother's legacy. So I knew that I was going to eventually have to talk to him, but I didn't talk to him before I wrote the rough draft. So this is a book, because it is so different than all my other novels, this is a book that I wrote in secret. This is a book that I wrote, holed up in my office, very much alone with joy. I wanted this to be her story. I was, when I first started doing the real research, I realized that so many people had so many differing opinions about joy. And so much had been written about her that I decided very early on that I wanted to write from her. I wanted to write from her point of view. I wanted to write from behind her eyes. I wanted to write from what I call the key of empathy. I needed this to be Joy's story. So I didn't want to interview Douglas right away because I didn't want anybody else's. I wanted Joy to carry this story And we have so much from Joy. We have poetry, letters, essays, novels. But I knew I would talk to him eventually. But he found me before I found him, which was amazing. It was one of the thousands of serendipitous things that happened while I was writing this novel. Um, It feels like that just saying, I want to write this novel, opened this kind of Narnian wardrobe door to all these amazing events. So right when I finished the rough draft, I got an email from Douglas and it said, I hear you have been asking after my mother. How may I help you? And at first I panicked because 
I didn't want him to stop the novel. I didn't want him to say, you can't write about your my mother. So I wrote back to him and I said, you know, my name is Patty Callahan. I'm a novelist and I have written a novel about your mother. And I've written a novel about your mother because I want to honor her. I've written a novel about your mother because I want to take her out of the box of the dying wife of C.S. Lewis. I've written a novel about your mother because I want to introduce her to an entirely new generation of women who need to hear from her. And I want the generation of women who only know her as the dying wife of C.S. Lewis to meet her in a new way. And then I waited with bated breath because I didn't know what he would think about someone writing a novel about his mother. People had written biographies, essays, all these other things, but what would he think of a novel? And I waited, and he wrote back, and he said, bravo. And then we started emailing and talking on the phone until he came to the States to do some lectures, and I was doing some lectures for an entirely different book, and we were an hour apart, and we finally met and spent the day together, and ever since then, he has been telling me stories about his mom. Some of them I included in the novel, and some of them are going to end up on a podcast one day. But he has been absolutely 100% supportive because he knows that this book is about honoring her for who she is and who she was in the world even before she met C.S. Lewis. She was a woman in her own right. She was way ahead of her time as a, as a powerful force, not only in the literary community, but as a woman. And to have his support is, is obviously beyond important to me. Now, I could have published the novel without his support, but I wouldn't have been able to use some of the things that I have in the novel. For example, each chapter starts with her love sonnet that she wrote for C.S. Lewis. And we can talk about how those were found if we want. But I needed his permission for those kinds of things. And then after the novel came out, I was very nervous about what he would think. So I never asked him. And I knew I gave him a very early copy. And then finally, one day, someone forwarded me a podcast that he was on. And on the podcast, he said this, this novel is extraordinary. It is as accurate or more accurate than most biographies written about my mother. And I couldn't have asked for more. A biblical perspective on life, culture, and current events. This is 2020 on Vision Christian Radio. Talking about the epic love story today, and uh, you might be familiar with the works of C.S. Lewis. Well, C.S. Lewis' wife, Joy, uh, is the subject of a book called Becoming Mrs. Lewis. Our special guest is Patty Callahan. Uh, her book has uh, just been released. And uh, just to say uh, that I didn't mention a little earlier, if you'd like to contribute to our conversation, uh, our Facebook is uh, has a quote has a uh, a post there where you can respond, perhaps with your favourite C.S. Lewis book, or you might like to mention if you have read any of Joy's books. Uh, and we'll talk about those books that were influenced uh, by Joy. And uh, you might like to join us on that part of the conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Vision Radio. So we won't uh, we won't. Uh, uh, 
uh, talk about those books uh, directly influenced yet, except to say Phil left a note saying really enjoyed the concept of the screw tape letters. And uh, that was one of the books that Joy read before she started to correspond with C.S. Lewis. Uh, Did you have any thoughts on uh, for Phil, who says he enjoyed the concept of the screw tape letters? Patty? Oh, absolutely. So when people ask me what inspired you to write about the story David men, I say we all fall in love with C.S. Lewis at different times in our life. Neil, what was your first what was your first book by C.S. Lewis? Uh, Mia Christianity is the one uh, that I would have bought more than 30 years ago, and uh, it's been on my bookshelf, and I've loaned it out, and it's come back. In fact, I think I've had a number of copies, and some of them were loaned out and didn't come back. Uh, that's the way that happens See? with those sorts of books. Right, because they're living things. So I grew up as a preacher's kid, and so my father's um, bookshelves were lined with C.S. Lewis books. And I grabbed the screw tape letters when I was about 12 years old. So I can tell you this, you should not read the screw tape letters when you're 12 years old <laughs> at all. And, right, so I believe that, you know, Satan was following me around. And yet that was the beginning of my falling in love with his, him and his work in, in any, the way that you can fall in love with an author. Um, and then I fell through the wardrobe door of Narnia, like most of us did. But I have read the screw tape letters at different times in my life for different reasons. And it's such a living piece of work that at different times in our life, that book has different meanings. And I love that. It's such an alive piece of literature that you can read it when you're one age, read it when you're another age, and it means something different each time. So, yes, when people ask me where to start with Lewis, I often tell them to start with the screw tape letters. Let's come back to Joy. Uh, We don't want to lose track of who we're talking about today. Joy began writing her letters to Jack, C.S. Lewis, and she was looking for spiritual answers. This is an interesting concept here because sometimes people might be thinking she was looking for romance, but... She wasn't looking for love because she was trying at that point even to hold her own marriage together and love wasn't holding together her crumbling marriage. And so she was looking for answers as we were talking about being on her knees as an atheist, wanting to hold things together. Take us into this idea of, uh, of looking for spiritual answers, Patty. So Joy was a lifelong seeker. She, she was so brilliant, and she was such a genius. This is a child born in the ni- 1915, who they knew from the get-go was a genius. She could read by three years old. She, passed, she blew the lid off every IQ test they gave her. She graduated from high school when she was 14 years old. She graduated from college before she was 19. College, not high school before she was 19, and finished Columbia Graduate School in a year and a half, including her thesis. So this is a woman who was constantly seeking for answers, and she ran down a thousand rabbit trails before she fell on her knees. So what was important about writing to Lewis was that she did it in complete earnest desire to understand the spiritual world. She wanted to understand what this something more in the world meant. 
She wanted to understand what had happened to her where she felt like she had been completely surrounded by love, something more, where logic didn't work anymore, where she couldn't use anything she had learned or read or written about to explain the desire and the need for something more. And so that is where she was searching. And because she had read his work and because she knew that C.S. Lewis also was in every way possible and intellectual equal, she knew that she could write to him for answers and it would be um, a, a conversation of seeking and intellectual answers and not just, um, you know, a casual pen pal ship. She didn't need that in her life. She needed answers, and she needed to, to talk to someone who had been where she was. So Lewis had written extensively at this point about how he had been an atheist and about his journey from atheism to theism to Christianity. And she, he had not written Surprised by Joy yet, which people think is the title of, for her name, which it's not. It's Patty, I'm going to need to cut from... in because we're about to go to news, and we'll pick up this okay. thread after the news. Patty, Joy lived at a time when women weren't meant to have a voice, and yet her love for Jack, uh, who she effective, uh, affectionately called uh, C.S. Lewis, Jack, uh, gave them both voices that they didn't know that they had. She had a voice, and he was enhanced in the voice that he had. Uh, take us into a little bit of this idea of where women uh, were silenced, really, in her era, but she in fact, gained this wonderful opportunity to have a voice of her own. Oh, yeah. So Joy was born in the early 1900s, but her voice as a, as a kind of prominent literary voice in the United States was right in the 30s and 40s when she came of age and won the Yale Younger Poets Award and published poetry and essays and novels. So she was already kind of a prominent woman's voice in the 30s and 40s, but still she wasn't as famous as she would be today because women's voices were still a little squelched. They weren't, they weren't as famous for what they were doing at that time. And then when she met Lewis, and I, I often say this, when I first started doing the research and I realized how the last 13 years of Lewis's work were so influenced by her. I didn't understand why that had been kind of hidden in in the you know the annals of history. Why was she not given credit for the muse, the best friend, the wife, and yes, even the co-author that she was with him during their ten years together, and then the three years Lewis lived past her and wrote about her and then used her influence to write some other books. So I'd never heard anyone say, do you know that the last 13 years of Lewis's life, he was highly influenced and even helped by this American woman named Joy Davidman, who was her own literary genius at the time. And I just felt like, why do we keep talking about the woman behind the man? instead of the woman beside the man. Why are we putting her in this box when, you know, she, she helped him edit, she helped him type, she was 
absolutely the co-author for my favorite book of Lewis's, my favorite novel of Lewis's, which is called Till We Have Faces, which is a retelling of the Cupid and Psyche myth. And she co-wrote that with him. And I had never seen her given credit for that, except in, you know, small, small places and the people who really knew their story. And I wanted everyone to know that. I wanted everyone to know of her influence on his work. Well, let's talk about these books that were influenced by Joy, uh, those books that C.S. Lewis wrote. You mentioned Till We Have Faces, 1956. Yes. There were some other works too. Uh, what other ones do you include in that list? Well, she helped him um, type up and do some editorial work on Surprised by Joy. Her fingerprints are all over the book, The Four Loves, because... He couldn't have understood or couldn't have comprehended the four kinds of love without her. And so you can see her fingerprints and you can see her influence in, in that book also. Of course, we have A Grief Observed, which is the book he wrote after she passed away. And it is beyond a shadow of a doubt one of the seminal books on grief ever written. So we wouldn't have that without their love story we wouldn't have um another the, one the called on reflections the on the psalms in 1958 yes, she encouraged him to write that because he didn't really want to so all of these books whether she was editing typing co-authoring or herself as a force of nature or a personality influenced these works. And then there's the list of books that Joy wrote, and this is uh, some of these uh, post-conversion, some of them uh, around the time uh, pre-conversion. I think her first book, 1938, A Letter to a Comrade, and you mentioned her communist links uh, in those early days. Perhaps her best-known book is Smoke on the Mountain, an interpretation of the Ten Commandments. Uh, What are the books that come to mind for you Patty, as you think about uh, those best-known and uh, best-loved books of Joy Davidman Gresham. Wow. So, first of all, for me, her poetry is some of my favorite. So, real quick, The Letter to a Comrade that you mentioned, that is the book that won her the Yale Younger Poets Award. And she wrote that, yes, during her communist days, but she wrote that as a reaction to the complete injustice of the Depression era of the United States, and then more specifically, the Spanish Civil War. So she had a really fierce um, uh, protection uh, for people who were not justly served. And so that was one of her most famous collection of collections of poetry. But the book that she wrote called Smoke on the Mountain, yes, you're right, that is the, the book that people point to, because that is the book she wrote about directly after her conversion. And it was actually a collection of a series of articles that she wrote for Presbyterian magazine. When it came out in the UK, um, C.S. Lewis wrote the foreword for that book. And so it is very well known. Her There was an uh, essay in the front of that book called The Sin of Fear, or On Fear. And in that essay, she has one of my very favorite quotes, which is, If we should ever grow brave, what on earth would become of us? But bar none, her poetry 
is what kind of rocked my world when I first discovered it. So she had a lot of published poetry, but about six years ago in Oxford, in a closet, her best friend's closet, they discovered a box. And in that box were 300 unpublished poems of Joy Davidman. And among those poems, there was a folder. And on the cover of that folder was written the word courage. And in that folder were 45 love sonnets to C.S. Lewis. So those 45 love sonnets, and that was published under the title A Naked Tree, is that right? Yes. So a man, in Mon- a professor in Montreat named Don W. King, who was extraordinary, collected those poems, published them, analyzed them, tells us where they came from, what they mean, and in those 45 love sonnets that she collected for C.S. Lewis and put together in one folder called Courage, we can start to see into the heart and mind of Joy Davidman during her time with Lewis. Now, some of those poems were written before she ever met C.S. Lewis, but she compiled them and put them in order to show the unfolding of their relationship. Let me ask you, Patty, because as the author of this book, which is, as you said, it's a novel, but you include so many excerpts from some of those love sonnets and the letters that went backward and forward between Joy and her beloved Jack. And what we hear uh, in the way you're describing this, and and as I've dipped into the book, Becoming Mrs. Lewis, which is your book, we have this wonderful, and as you call them, brilliant, uh, there is this brilliant minds who have written and have such a special skill in being able to articulate their thoughts like us mere mortals often struggle with, but to be able to exactly, dip into... Right? Be able to dip into what brilliant minds write when they're describing the developing love story. This is part of what makes your book very special. Well, thank you. So the love sonnets are real. I start every chapter with a line or two from the sonnets, and and not just the sonnets, but some other poetry that she wrote. And yet the letters are lost to time. So the letters in my novel are imagined. They are inspired. They aren't real. We don't have the letters that they wrote to each other. Okay, so you've filled in the gaps there. You've read between the lines on some of those. Yeah, so what I often say is that we don't have the letters they wrote to each other but we have the letters they wrote to other people during that time. And we also have Joy's poetry and her essays. And so we know what I call, we, don't, we can't fully know on this side of the grave, but we are clued in to what I call the emotional truth of what was happening with Joy. Because that's this novel. This novel's been from her point of view, from behind her eyes, from the seat of her heart. So to read those letters is to have a little glimpse into what they were already writing to other people and what they were writing in their personal papers. So although we do not have their letters and can have no idea of exactly what their letters said to each other, we can imagine and be inspired by what they cared about during those years, 
but that what, what they wrote about to other people during those years, to what meant something to them during those years. And so that back and forth was very much taken from what they were already talking about with other people. Patty, let's talk about what we were saying a little earlier, that joy is best known for, perhaps up until now, and that is the fact that she died. And you mentioned that one of the books that C.S. Lewis wrote was called A Grief Observed, and he wrote that under a pseudonym, didn't put his name on it. We're talking 1961 here. And he kept notebooks and writing down his feelings, describing his immense grief, a period where he was himself questioning God. When we talk about that book and the connection here to joy, no doubt there is something very, very deep that you can lead us into. This is really one of the most significant uh, outpourings of the heart that people can read. Uh, what were your thoughts about a grief observed and uh, the way that this love story comes to a culmination uh, with the beauty of being able to describe uh, the feelings of a man at the death of his wife? The raw pain in that novel is part of what spurred me in that book, is part of what spurred me to write this novel. Because for someone to write that with such raw openness and such honesty, and obviously, like you said, he wrote it under a nom de plume, N.W. Clerk, which he had written under before when he didn't want his work to be known as his. Um, you know, there's quite a number of theories about why he would hide it. He was at Cambridge at the time. He might might not want it, have wanted everyone to read this kind of raw pain that he was he was putting on the page. There seems to be doubts. There seems to be um, questioning. There seems to be all kinds of things that he lays out in those pages that makes anyone who's going through grief feel less alone. So if you're reading that and you're going through grief, it is like C.S. Lewis is coming alongside of you and saying, you're not alone. I felt this too. It is amazing because when you uh, stop and reflect for a few moments, because C.S. Lewis, known as one of those great Christian thinkers, even great Christian apologist, but as he's writing this book about his own grief that he suffers when he loses the love of his life, uh, he's even in those times doubting God and coming back to those, I guess, they're the emotions that we have as fallen humanity and the doubts and grief that we might suffer when we're at our worst mm. times of pain. Uh, what do you think yeah. about those sorts of uh, reflections? And perhaps maybe that's why he was writing under a pseudonym at the time. You know, we can guess, and that would be my guess, but... There's also the, there there have been people who've written about this. There's this great essay, if you want to look it up later, by Dr. David Downing at the Wade Center called A Grief, um, A Grief Obscured. And he talks about why Lewis wrote it under a pseudonym and how there's some very Dantean influences in that book. And both Joy and Lewis were not fans of, but would often allude to the imagery in Dante. And it's in that book. And he, he almost in 
evokes the imagery of these kind of circles of going inward and inward and then coming back out and being honest about how it feels to question what you what you've always solidly said you believe in and how and to me what it says is it's very easy to believe something until you're tested it's very easy to believe something until there comes a time when what you need to believe is life or death which is i think how he puts it which is that if you are going to believe something you have to believe it even in this moment and that is what i think he's working through in that book I think it's wonderful that you've been able to write from the perspective of these two and discussing their feelings at times when they were going through, both of them, a crisis of belief. If we go Mm. back to those atheism days and the heart-searching that came from Joy and, of course, then talking about the end of Joy's life and this heart-searching that goes on in these reflections all about grief and loss. Uh, This is sometimes when we talk about a love story, it's not necessarily happily ever after because, as we were saying, the brilliance of these two minds being able to reflect the reality of what we are in for on this journey that we call life. Uh, This is a powerful, impacting way that the two of them have been able to uh, show something of their own heart to the readership. Yes. When I was writing those last scenes of joy where she knows what she has been diagnosed with, she knows that everything she ever wanted is now going to be taken away. Where she finally gets to the point where everything she thinks she's ever dreamed of is going to be snatched from her. And how does she handle that? And that's when their love, like miraculously and, and ironically and beautifully flowers is when they realize that this is what they have, but it could be, it's going to be gone. It's over. Right, And then they're granted this, I don't want to give too much away, but then they're granted this miraculous reprieve. And what do they do with that time? What do they do with that reprieve? How do they hold on to each other with this, what they call the Democles sword hanging over their heads? And there's something special here, Patty, when we talk about this level of grief and this outpouring that we hear from C.S. Lewis about his wife, because when she was diagnosed with that incurable cancer, uh, bone metastasis from breast carcinoma, Mm. that was the diagnosis. Interesting here when we think of what the impact might be on each of us as we're going through our lives and as we age and as we get to a point where perhaps our own spouse or we ourselves may be faced with a diagnosis that may be impossible for the human heart to deal with. Uh, There is something Mm. here where we can glean from these two in their love story as to how we actually navigate those days ahead of us. Oh, I love that you said that. Neil, I think one of the things I often say is that Joy has so much to say to us today, so much. 
And we might not need to pack up our kids and get on a ship and, and move to England or Australia or, or, or pump our lives over and start over like she did, but we might need to pack up everybody's expectations of us, everybody else's demands of us, and ask Christ what his demands are of us, right? And what we need to do that is separate from what everybody else wants of us. And one of the things that just broke me with joy is that she did not have to die of metastatic breast cancer. And it was one of the many things beyond being a writer and a mother and a wife that bound me to joy, but that I had had breast cancer. And mine was caught early. Mine was treated. I am totally fine. I'm, I'm eight, nine years out now. But Joy's was not caught. And, when she, and she knew something was wrong. She knew something was wrong. And she kept telling the doctors, I don't know what this is. And they kept giving her these crazy excuses, like middle age at 35. And, um, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, all these diagnoses that were wrong. And so it was able to run rampant through her body and take her life. And she knew it was preventable. And that's what broke my heart, was that it was preventable. It could have been stopped. Think of, think of the work that came out of their relationship, and imagine if there had been another decade of that work or that life together or that love together. And so, yes, that was a lesson to me in very much not only how to deal with tragedy, but not ranting against the fates and saying, I, I, this didn't have to happen. Instead, Joy said, what do we do right now? Well, powerful insights, and I know that there'll be listeners who won't be able to wait to get a hold of a copy of your book. Now, you've written a lot of books, and I'll point people to a website where they can see some more of the sorts of things that you've been writing, Patty Callahan. and uh, I know that your earlier books are written under the name Patty Callahan Henry, and your website yeah. is com. The book we've been talking about today is called Becoming Mrs. Lewis. Patty Callahan is a New York Times best-selling author, and this is her latest book that we've been talking about. And, and I'm not sure I've ever talked about a love story in the way that we have talked about this love story today, Patty. And uh, thank oh, you so good. much. I'm glad, I'm glad I'm your first in that way. That's awesome. <laughs> You've been taking us uh, somewhat deeper than uh, the idea of a lovely love story that ends in happily ever after. And uh, and there is a sense here, I guess, that this love story does end in happily ever after because. From what I understand, the two were strong in their faith in their last days. And I imagine that we all want to finish well, and here's an illustration of how to finish well. Would you say that's a a way to sum up their lives? Oh, absolutely. So I I love to quote this. Joy wrote an essay on her conversion, and the last line in that essay was, In his will is our peace, which is also a line from Dante. And Lewis says that the last words on earth for her where I am at peace with God. Her very last and words. I would say, yes, her very last words. I, I am, am at peace, peace with God. With God. Uh, Patty Callahan, thank you so much for staying up late to talk to us here in Australia. 
the book Becoming Mrs. Lewis. Uh, you'll find it in good bookstores everywhere. You can also visit Patty's website, pattycallahanhenry.com, and get a hold of Becoming Mrs. Lewis. Patty, thanks so much for joining us today on 2020. Oh, it's been my pleasure, and happy weekend. I hope you have a beautiful weekend. Thank you. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.